It's so good to see you. I do hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. Ours was kind of adventurous all this last week or so. And, and um, so I hope that you are traveling. I hope that you have safe travels back. People always ask about all seasons. They're like, well, I bet, boy, Easter and, and Thanksgiving and Christmas, I bet that's y'all's biggest days. I'm like, that's our littlest days. And they're like, I said, we have a young church. I said, everybody go see grandma. I said, I said, I said that's, that's our killer. Down. It's like our holidays are like, like where'd everybody go? And, and it's like, just understand, they didn't quit us. It didn't go. We're just gone to see. And so our people are the younger side. We travel. We go see family and stuff. And you look around, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of you know, canes in here. It's, it's, it's a lot of, whole lot of people we put to work. So we pray for all of those who are traveling those who are flying, those who are getting back home. And if you're with us and you're traveling, we're, we're so glad to have you this morning. All right. Number five. It's taken me this long. I've still got about four or five more of these to go to get through this thing, it looks like. So it keeps growing. Um, we started off, as they pull up the photo that I started off with about five weeks ago. And we started this series on being perfectly abnormal. And, and when I say that you're abnormal, in our culture, it's used as a way to try to draw you back to being like everyone else. It, it's it, it, to be abnormal. In fact, we, we work our school systems now to where we don't want special classes for smarter kids. We're trying to get to where everybody's on the same level. We we want to make sure everybody feels equal. Nobody feels less than or, or great. If we play sports, we want to make sure everybody gets a trophy, whether they know the, how to run or not. It doesn't matter if they have any athletic ability. And somebody should have done looked at them and said, you need to learn to play an instrument. But instead, we give them trophies and we tell them, shoot, you can even convince yourself your kid is going to be a major league player and spend hundreds of dollars every week, stay in hotels and, and do travel ball and somebody, coach, will convince you your kid's got it for $400 a week. We live in a culture where if somebody says you're different, it hurts us, it offends us, it bothers us. And so one of the first things growing up in my life that I had to come to grips with that I'm trying to get across to you is that it's okay to be abnormal. It's okay to have different gifts, different skills, to see it differently. It's okay. It's part of how God made you. Now, we know there's a criteria of how we're supposed to live. Paul makes lists of how we're supposed to live and certain things we are to do and don't do. We understand that. But I'm talking about in the personality and the way God made you and how you see things sometimes differently. And this is so important because as we said, when the world looks at us, it says you're unusual. You're, 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 you're something wrong with you. You're weird. You're freakish. You're strange. You're uncustomary. You're unwanted. When God looks at us, he looks at us and says, you know what? You're spectacular. You're extraordinary. You're rare. You're unusual. You're unique, exceptional. You're uncommon. It's the same word. It's the same word somebody calls you at work or at school or wherever. But it's all in how I see it when it's said to me. And it's all how I see it through the lens of how God gives it to me. You will feel the pressure of the world all the time because they're constantly telling you if you step, you know, those, those Christians, those fanatics, 
They don't mean that as a compliment. But it should be. Well, thank you. I'm glad I don't act like you. That should become our response. Man, I've worked very hard serving God to not look like you, act like you, talk like you, treat my kids like you. I'm thankful for what God's allowed me to do. And so we started off, and I need to get through this because I've got to get to the start of this message. So we began this process, for those of you that weren't here, understanding what abnormal and dealing with the definition of abnormal. And when we dealt with this the first two weeks, there's some things that I need you to understand that we pulled from this. Number one is this, is that tradition centers us in our identity. I'm not trying to tell you that tradition is a bad thing. Tradition is the start. There are certain traditions Certain things like going to church, praying, reading your Bible. There's certain traditions that are to be consistent. There's certain ways that your family has raised you that is good. You do get one chance for a first impression, and you should dress or take a bath or do. There's certain things that you've been taught that are wonderful things that you are to carry on in your life. But the problem with traditions is, is that it eventually becomes normalcy. And what happens is that normal feels good to us. So what do we do? We go and sit in the same chair at the same church. How, we don't know the people on the other side. We're not going to sit. We don't ever sit on row four. We always sit at the back. And if we're not careful, we become so normal and so traditional that we're unusable by God. We can't step out because it's comfortable to us. Brother, I just can't do that. Brother, I'm just not comfortable with that. I'm just, well, good. That's life. Get used to it. You're supposed to get used to it. If you were following Jesus in his time and you were one of his disciples, one thing you find out from reading all the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was that Jesus kept them uncomfortable. Jesus kept them constantly in boats that were sinking or problems they couldn't solve or situations. And Jesus didn't walk around and just laugh at them and say, ha, I got you. No, he's saying, I want you to get used to this. I want you to realize this is the normal for your life, to be abnormal to the world, to not fit in. And unless you get that, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to become Church of God or Baptist or Methodist, but you won't become Christian. You'll identify yourself by all the wrong things, all the traditional things. Some of it good, some of it not good. But the fact is, you'll just settle and become, that's who I am, row four. I've been church of God all my life. I was third generation. I'm this, I'm that. I I know all this because I grew up in this. Some of you grew up in other backgrounds. And the hardest thing is to become abnormal. When everybody is telling you to just act normal. We don't praise like that. We don't worship like that. You're odd. So what happens then is, as we learn, routine and tradition then will kill your expectations. Before long, you'll complain about your church, you'll complain about your life, you'll complain about your marriage, you'll complain, but all you're getting is exactly what you expect. 
You expected to sit there. You expected to go through that. You knew the three songs they were going to sing. You knew what was fixing to happen. You knew the preacher usually preaches on salvation. You knew all this was fixed. Why are you astonished? You could have pretty much by your watch, and some people, it's morning wheel. They'll sit in their church, and they'll go by their watch, and they can tell you when it's going to end, how it better end, or we'll have a meeting. And yet at the same time, I'd love to see God move. We'll take off the watch. Oh, no. No, 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 no. You don't understand. That, that's, that keeps us. So routine and tradition kills your expectation. The last couple of weeks, the guys have done incredible jobs listening to their messages. And, and, and what they dealt with was some of the results of when we start to break out of this. What happens? Well, first off, we know that you will know them by fruits. All of a sudden now, I'm not, I'm not normal. I'm producing things that is not normal to the world. My life is not normal. For all who belong, who being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You're not going to relate the same way. You're not going to act the same way. Your, your life is going to change. Here's some of the questions that I would ask you. Are you bearing spiritual fruit? Are you obeying and doing God's will in your life? Are you, are you different? Are you practicing righteousness? Are you, are you training with full effort in your devotion to God? It, did you get up this morning and when praise and worship was taking place, you're praising and worship? Not because it's just a routine but let me give you an understanding of praise, that, and I'll come back and preach this another time. Is that all right? Let me give you a definition for praise you can write down. Praise is the act that you do that lights the candle for the word God has spoken. And that's all I'm going to elaborate, but that... In other words, when I'm praising, it is not an emotional effect. If it is, it'll end as soon as you sit down. Praise, when it is done properly, will stir within you and shine a light inside of you that reminds you or stirs up the word that God has already spoken to you. So that when you sit down, here's what happens when you've truly praised. When you truly praise, you will sit down and your mind will still be like, I'm going to see that kid saved. I'm going, I am going to, we are going. Why? Because praise stirs when it's done correctly a light inside of you that illuminates the word that God has already spoke to you. That's why nobody can praise for you. Because nobody can praise for you and illuminate the light. They may be praised and they may look over at you and say, I believe God's going to do that for you. And you may smile and go, yeah. <laughs> Woohoo! But it's not until you. So are you pursuing God? Are you, are you chasing God? Then last week we, we learned that it transfers right into the next step. You are the light. Not only the light that shines in you, but the light that shines out of you. That it helps others to see their life. It helps others to see. Now all of this leads us 
to, to where we are this morning. We're going to be in the book of John, the ninth chapter. And I'm going to just say this as I'm kind of just rebuilding this thing for the next several weeks and I'm going to be here. You can say, thank the Lord, he's going to be here. I'm here to stay for a while. You're good. I could, for the rest of my ministry, and I mean this honestly, I could take chapter 7, 8, and 9 of John, and I could preach that chapter, those three chapters, for the rest of my ministry and never run out of sermons. It is one of the deepest parts of the Bible you will ever experience. I'll probably come back in the spring or something and do a series on Wednesdays on it. Because I just love to go to this section. It covers everything. It covers all the characters. It is like we always pull the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but this is just as powerful and just as mighty. And it is as deep of, of anything that I ever jump into, and there's no time that I go into it that I don't come out and say, I never saw that. I never truly got that. So I want to speak this morning on when normal meets abnormal. What happens when normal bumps into and meets abnormal? Now, we've talked about what you need to be, the light of the world. You need to be dedicated. You need to bear fruit. You need to, you need to uh, not be traditional so much that you can't move with God. You need all of these actions operating in your life, and you become an abnormal person in the normal world, and, and, and people begin to label you sometimes weird or freakish, and also they may say, man, I'm telling you, you are doing good if they're on the Christian side, and man, I wish I was doing what you were doing. It, it, you start to accumulate labels in your life. One of my favorite writers, before I read verses 1 through 16, is Oswald Chambers. And a lot of what I want to say is wrapped around what Oswald Chambers said in these two statements. Here's number one. It is not true to say that God wants to teach us something in our trials. We use that phrase, all God wants to teach me something in my trials. That's really not true. Though ev through every cloud he brings our way, he wants us to what? Unlearn something. We see it as, well, God wants to, well, to teach you something means I'm going to add it to what I already know. The problem in Christianity is old things are passed away. Here, here's the hard part of Christianity. You can't bring what you know into what you're fixing to learn. This is what's frustrated the Apostle Paul. This was the thorn that God had put into his flesh. He was considered by historians on his writings one of the six smartest men of all time. Can you imagine this guy that could debate, could have walked into synagogues, that could have defended the gospel, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to act dumb. What? I want you to act just, just, I don't want you to, to use your ability. I don't want you, I want you to just act humble. I want you to act innocent. I want people to, to, to ridicule, abuse. I want, if you just let me go, 
in your weakness, I am made strong. So Paul said, all that I have learned, I count as loss, dung, for the knowledge of Christ. Do you know how hard that was for him who has spent his entire life? I ain't talking about just somebody who went to school. I'm talking about somebody who went to school and was among Gamaliel, the head student. He was the valedictorian of the, of the Pharisaic clan. Had spent his entire life gaining knowledge. And God says, none of it's useful. But I know some things. You don't know anything. I've learned some stuff. No, you haven't. And for me, it's, it's the hardest thing to get up to a place and say, I've learned some stuff. Especially us older people. Let me just go ahead and say this. It's going to hurt your feelings. That's why the older we get, the harder it is for us to be used by God. Because we look at younger people and we say, well, I know some things. I learned some things. And it's hard for us to watch God use different music sometimes and use walls. and use... I know because I'm getting old. I'm like, I don't need none of this stuff. And the hardest thing is to say, Tim, you don't know. Oswald Chambers said this too, the second quote. God is not concerned about your plans. He doesn't ask, do you want to go through this loss of a loved one, this difficulty or this defeat? No, he allows these things for his own purpose. The things we are going through are either making us sweeter, better, and nobler men and women, or they are making us critical and fault-finding and more insistent on our own way. The things that happen either make us evil or they make us more saintly. Depending entirely on the relationship with God and its level of intimacy. That's the secret. That's the key to life right there. It's not, well, God didn't do this for me. The difference between people in church today and the people at Walmart today if you narrow it down, is that statement right there. We all have been through stuff. We all have faced stuff. We all have had trials. We all have had difficulties. But one group, God did not do what he should have done. God did not answer it the way he should have answered it. And what will drive you out of church will be the same statement that you ramble in your mind. Why didn't God, if there really was a God, he wouldn't have done this. If there really, he wouldn't have let this happen. He wouldn't have let... This week, my, my mom and them had a wreck, and, and, and Elise told me, and we had to drive down there, and, and she's like, are you all right? I'm like, I'm fine either way. And I know that seems strange. I'm praying. I'm, I'm, I'm worried like anybody, but, but I'm good. How can you be that way? Because right there, I'm not going to let this situation determine whether God is real or whether God loves me or whether God is faithful or whether God... Things are going to happen to the good and bad. It's going to rain on the just and the unjust. But us as people, we're so quick to say, well, if God loved me or if I must not be right or I must not. No, that's just the enemy talking to you like he talked to Eve. He said, if God really cared about you, he would have given you this. If, if he really wanted you to have something, he would have given you this. And we're still falling for the same problem. Some of you in this room, that's your battle every day of your life. 
You're either becoming more saintly because I'm trusting God in the intimacy I have with him more, or I'm becoming more worldly because I'm convincing myself every day God doesn't exist and God doesn't fix things. No, I, it doesn't mean I'm going to quit church because I'm still going to sit on row four and I'm still going to sing the same three songs. And I'm still, But believe me, when I walk out of this building, me and God are not going to work together. I gave up on that. On a God that can do what I cannot do. And I'm not trying to preach down. I'm, not trying, I'm telling you, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. I told you this sermon started with one statement. You got to get close enough to God to get a word. And I asked you the very first week to do what? To write down the sentence. Have you done it? Do you quote it every day? Do you pull it out every day? I'm talking about when it, today it looks like that is going so backwards from what I've asked. I asked God to touch my family. And man, my family is in worse shape now than it was yesterday. This is not work. Do you? Quote it to him again. Last night I stood in the foyer and I pulled out my notepad and with tears in my eyes, with things not going the way I would like to see them, and I opened it up and I said, God, here's the words you gave me. And I quoted it and just sitting there crying. And I began to tell God, God, I trust you. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care. And what happens? The intimacy and the strength grows. This is the relationship that God is called. That's the abnormal that you become to the world. So now turn with me to chapter 9, verse 1, and I'll get to my sermon. I got plenty. To, I got weeks, years if I need to. Here's what chapter 9, verse 1 through 16 says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva And he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's kind of like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees who had made formerly, who had the man who'd formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? 
And there was a division among them. This is everyday life for a Christian. When normal meets abnormal. When the natural meets the unmovable, impossible doing God. And we are smack in the middle. His ambassadors, his, his, his representatives, his sons and daughters who stand as servants serving him to this world. Now I want to give you some backdrop of, of what's taking place. Chapter 7 and 8 basically is this. It is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Chapter 7 begins with this. His brothers who don't believe him, his own brothers don't believe who he is, says, you need to come with us. You need to come show everybody who you are and do some miracles out in front of everybody so everybody will believe in you. Jesus says, no, I'm not going. It ain't my time. The Pharisees were hoping that he would show up because they'd know which booth he was at with his family and they planned to kill him. But Jesus doesn't come until middle of the week. During the middle of the week, when everybody kind of settled back down, the Pharisees said he ain't showing up. Jesus pops in. Middle of the week, he just pops in, does some miracles, begins to teach, talking about who he is, and talk. And the Pharisees come unglued. They start to debate with him. He defends his Sabbath healings, which is normal for him. I think he does this just to tick them off. I mean, but you'll record a many a Sabbaths. He heals people, straightens out withered arms. And, and he tells them, he said, now listen, y'all have got a law that Moses told you eight days after a child is born, it has to be circumcised. And he says, if that baby's born and the eighth day falls on a Sabbath, y'all know what y'all do? Y'all still do circumcision. And y'all said, that's not work. I don't know if you ever paid a doctor, but any time a doctor does work, he's going to charge. That's work. He says, y'all say, that's not work. That's, that we're obeying Moses' law. But you tell me that relieving somebody and helping somebody and doing good on the Sabbath, that's work. If I tell someone to get up, he said, he'll later say, if, if you release your donkey and untie your donkey, you don't call that work. But if I tell someone to straighten out their arm, you think I'm doing work. So, so you're somehow all messed up. And man, he gets in these heated arguments with them. Finally, they just dismiss and go home. The next morning, they come back and guess what? That's the story of when they find this a woman in adultery. They drag her and throw her in front of Jesus and say, the law says, because see, they're arguing over the law. And the law says we should stone her. What do you say? And we know Jesus digs in the ground a little bit and looks up and says, you without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Go ahead and get her. They're all like, ah. He tells the woman, we're your accusers. He said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. We have... Jesus then says that he was before Abraham. Now this pushes him over the end. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't preach he doesn't preach way too big a sermon now. Before Abraham was, I was. You telling me you're older than Abraham? Oh yeah, I knew him. 
They start, the Bible says, picking up stones. And chapter 8 ends with him picking up stones, going to kill him. And the Bible says at the end of chapter 8, he eases his way out of town. And chapter 9 jumps in. Now think of this now. He's easing out of town. There's guys behind him with rocks. They got one job. They want to kill him. And Jesus is leaving the temple area and his his disciples are with him. And yet, in the middle of all of this, he notices, and verse 1 says it this way, that there was a man who was blind. As Jesus is leaving the temple, there's a man who's blind. Can you pull up verse 1? There. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from... He sees a man... While he's got people yelling at him from behind, he's got stuff going on, he's, he's done riled up everybody in town, and, and he's walking out of town, and he's, he's just easing along, and he, you got to catch this, I mean, it, we just think like Jesus is just crazy. No, all this stuff's happening around him, and in the middle of all of this, he's calm enough and eased enough to say, oh. And he catches the notice of this blind person. And his disciples then ask him a question. So it begins with this mindset. Now healing to Jesus is nothing new. One of the key factors that the Pharisees and others go through in this is, is this healing. Go with me to John 20. I'll show you what I'm talking about. John 20 verses 30 through 31. Let me show you this before I jump into more. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In fact, one writer says that if there had been everything Jesus talked about and everything he did, books would not be able to contain it. Books would not, libraries could not hold what he talked about all the time. We're given just snapshots, enough. But these are written so that you might do what? Believe. Look at the person beside you. So you would become abnormal. Everything in the... I I get confused when they say, well, John is the love book. John is the... No, John is not the love book. John is the miracle book. In fact, John tells you why he writes this book. But these things are written in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. That's the whole purpose of this book. So when I'm fixing to tell you this story, the whole purpose of what I'm fixing to preach to you is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is Lord of lords and King of kings and that he has called you into a life of abundance and a life that's abnormal to this world. But that's okay. He's got enough power to get it done. He can cash the check. So Jesus comes, in fact, let me just say it this way. During Jesus' ministry, Jesus around Galilee and that area, he about eradicates sickness. I want you to get this in your mind. The Bible says in Matthew, he healed all diseases. He stops funeral possessions. And, and raises dead people. He is on a 
monumental. We think of miracles in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's only like three resurrections. There's only a few things that happen. We, we make it sound like the Old Testament, man, there's just miracles. There's not that many. There's a few scattered here and there. Physical miracles, there's only like six recorded. Six to eight physical miracles recorded. Jesus does that in one chapter in Mark. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that before Jesus came on the scene, miracles were sparse, a few every now and then, maybe something. But when Jesus started his ministry, it was an explosion. People are tearing roofs off to get to it. People are bringing people from other countries to get to it. Canaanite women are traveling a long distances just to ask Jesus to heal their daughter who's back home. Matt, the Roman guards and, and Roman guards are coming to him saying, don't come to my house, but just tell me the word. And if you just speak the word, it'll be done. These are happening all the time around him. This is happening miraculously. He's heat he's, from the time he finished is preaching. He begins to lay hands on people. He begins to speak over people. He begins, and he never uses the same thing. Why is that important, Brother Lot? Because that same power is operating today. Not Old Testament, New Testament power. Greater things will you do because I go to the Father. One of the things that's been robbed out of the church is that we pray for things, but we don't speak to things. I wish we could go back to where we prayed when we got up in the morning and we spoke to the problems as we faced them during the day. Instead, we get up in the morning hoping God's with us. And when we bump into a problem, we tell everybody on Facebook, pray with me. This is not the New Testament style. The New Testament order is that you... Rise, you pray, you make sure your relationship and everything is good with God. And whatever you face during the day, whether it's disease or problems or trouble, you speak to it as though you have authority that it would be gone. And you can start with your food. I always joke about that, but I mean it seriously. I never pray over my food. I pray in the morning. What does the morning prayer sound like? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. So when I get my meal, you know what I do? Thank you for an answered prayer, Lord. I'm not praying for, Lord, bless it. Hope it ain't going to give me salmonella or something. I'm not praying that. I'm thanking God for the answer to the prayer that I prayed in the morning. That's why the disciples never asked Jesus, teach us how to heal people. Teach us how to pray. Healing people becomes natural. But having a prayer life that has enough power to do it, that is special. I hope this is helping you. Okay. So understand this man the disciples then ask a question that is, that is normal for us. Because if we don't have a mindset of healing, we go into theology. That's what we do. We preach 45 minutes about something we're going to pray 10 minutes about. 
So pull up the scripture again. Let's read it. I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. The disciples then, in verse 2, ask this question. And the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? Now, they didn't ask him, did someone sin? They didn't, they didn't ask him, is it a possibility? They have done changed the fact that Jesus is staring at a problem and there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, but their mind goes back to theology. Well, I wonder why they're sick. I wonder what, well, you know, they smoke most of their lives, so I guess that's just, yeah, but so-and-so smoked to the day they died. And they never got anything. I don't know. You can get in theological questions and get marred down. That's never what we were called to. You're not called to wonder why that person is sick or why that person is, is troubled, why that marriage is, is t- falling apart, why those kids are troubled. Your job is to bring a remedy to the situation through prayer, through what God has given you. You're not there to be a psychiatrist. You're not there to, to, to try to psychoanalyze. You're not there to try to give them a Pop-Tart and tell them it's going to be okay. Your job is to bring the kingdom of God into the situation that's there. But we too many times want to get theological. And the disciples are no different. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? See, what they had a, a belief in in their time was that you could sin not only out of the womb, you could sin while you were in the womb. They had done spent so much time in this talking about sin and talking about messing up. Well, what do you do about a baby that's been born? Well, Even one theology believed in the Pharisee, if they kicked a lot, it meant they were sinning in the womb. So if you were a mom and you had a baby that kicked a lot, you're like, oh Lord, they're sinning already. You're like, no, brother, I'm telling you, this is, you get to talking about problems long enough and you'll come up with some crazy solutions to your problems. And it happens in church. Well, brother, I know why I have this. Well, tell me why you think you have this. Well, my aunt so-and-so, she ran off with somebody years ago, and I know God's done cursed me, and I'm done. I'm like, Lord, have mercy, you three generations back. <laughs> oh, I believe in that, brother, to the fourth generation, so my kid's going to be it too. I'm like, no, 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 no. No, no, what he's talking about in that scripture when he talks about to the third and fourth generation, he's talking about the leadership. It's not talking about individuality. It's talking about if, let's just say, uh, if, if we elect an independent president, let's not go Democrat, Republic, I'll lose you right there. Let's just say we elect this independent president and he comes up with these harebrained, crazy philosophies and passes these laws. Do you realize we can't fix that in like 10 years or five years? It will take to get... What we're putting into our society now, do you understand? The world understands it, that once you put it in there, it's hard to get it out. It, you, don't just, you don't just wake up one day and it's, oh, it's gone. It takes time. If, if, if we're going to be a society that's not going to be married, and we're going to be a society that does this, and we're going to be a society of that, that, that it's going to take time. Anything the church comes in and says, we're going to change this. Do you notice how hard it is to fight against that, to bring it back to some normalcy? The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? They believed that coming out of the womb, you were already a sinner. 
Was this man sinning in the womb and he already committed sin? Or did his mom and dad do something and this boy got cursed? And Jesus does not spend the time or the energy trying to get into a debate with him. Listen to what he says. And Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be. Don't lose sight of what you're called to do. Don't lose sight of what God's called you to do. You're in a marriage. Well, whose fault is it? Hers or his? Who cares? What are you supposed to do? Husband, start dying for your wife. Wife, start submitting to your husband. Well, you don't know. Uh, I don't want to talk about the past. I don't want to talk. What do you need to do? We can, we can sit here and debate and have theology for the next 10 years. What do you need to do? To change what you're in. What do you need to do differently? If the music you're listening to, it keeps putting your mind in a bad place. Let me give you a brainstorm. Change the station. Brother Lott, would you pray for me that I wouldn't have these crazy thoughts? i got a better idea. How about we just change the radio station? Oh. But I like that music. Well, then you got to like the results. Jesus is practical. In our lives, to shine, like we talked about the last few weeks, our light bearing fruit, it's practical. It's not, it's not some mystical thing. Do right. Good trees produce. Jesus answered, said, it's neither one. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can. Jesus has the understanding that I'm not going to get caught up. I mean, he's got people yelling at him with stones behind him. He's got chaos all around him. He's got disciples that are wondering whether this guy sinned while he was still in his mama's womb. He's got all this and he's like, I'm not getting caught in all the junk. I'm not going to get caught in all of your debate and all of your, we're just going to do what God called us to do. An old preacher said this to me years ago and it's been stuck in my mind ever since. Because we always show up and want a new sermon and we always show up and want a new... And in his sermon he preached this and it's never left me. He said, if we just do what we already know to do, we wouldn't have to hear a sermon for the next three years. If you just got up today and did what you know you need to do. But we want to add another one. Ooh, that's a new thing Pastor Lot just told me. And Jesus does not get caught in this. He understands that, listen guys, I'm not going to be here but about six more months. And I'll be dead. Less than a year, I'll be gone. This is in October when this happens. Come next spring, at Passover, 
He will be back in Jerusalem for his final visit. And he looks at them and he says, we must work. And I like how he says it. We. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. In other words, I'm going to die. You're going to die. Every one of us in this room is going to die. And all the stuff that we keep thinking is so important and we keep thinking is so valuable and, and, and all the stuff we keep collecting and putting in our garage and all the stuff we keep collecting and putting in some bank account somewhere and all this stuff, there's going to be no U-Haul behind you. You're not, there's not going to be a hearse. You can collect every antique car in the county. You know what? They're not bearing you in anything but a box. And here's the crazy part. The stuff you love will be somebody else's yard sale. Well, that was grandma gave me that little thing. I'll give you $5. I'll take it. Just know that invaluable thing will be a $5 gift. That skillet that grandma used to cook cornbread in. Give you $3 for that rusty thing. I'll take it. I'm not trying to scare you. Jesus is not trying to be ugly. He's telling, guys, guys, focus. You're standing in front of somebody who's blind and hurting, and instead of thinking, what can we do to help him, all you're thinking is, I wonder what he did. Wonder what caused that. What is it, mama, his daddy, or did he do something? That's all you're thinking about. What do you think about when you pass somebody on the street who's homeless? Wonder what they did. What do you do when you pass somebody who's hurting? I wonder what they did. Or do you think, what can I do? That's the difference. Jesus went about doing good. He never overlooked the opportunity. And you say, well, I can't do much. Oh, the Bible gives you a great illustration. If you give a glass of water, and I tell you what, you want to do a ministry, just carry bottles of water with you. It costs $3 for a 24-pack, you just carry bottles of water. And, and when you're walking by somebody that you don't know how to, you're not good at praying, you're not good, just say, look, I'm not, I'm not the greatest Christian, and, and I'm not claiming to be the greatest in the kingdom, but hey, here's some water, and just know I love you. He said, do you know if you just did that, your reward would not be lost in the kingdom? Am I okay? You ain't, you ain't, okay. I'm going to get through these first five verses. I promise I will. Having said these things to them, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes. There's two reasons why he did this. I know, and there's thousands of other ways. And if I told you, if I read it again, I'd come up with two more. There, there's, there's really endless reasons why. But let me give you the two that are the main two. Number one is because he's still letting you know of his creative power. John starts the book in 1 John by saying that in the beginning, he was there. And nothing was ever created without him. That anything that is was made by his hands. That's why by chapter 9, he says his hands reached down back into the dirt that made Adam. And he makes spittle and he makes saliva 
and he makes mud. And he takes, just like he made Adam, he takes it. Because I want you to realize, when I said Jesus did miracles and they were off the chain, listen to me very carefully. When Jesus came on the scene, people's limbs were growing back. People's organs were being replaced. Bone that was never there in an arm, all of a sudden they grew a bone and their arm could straighten out. Legs that had never had joints or any sinew all of a sudden could rise and jump. I don't think you realize when you think about Jesus what he was doing. We just think he walked around, oh, bless you, bless you, oh, I kissed a kid. Oh, he could walk up to lepers and shake hands and leprosy would just leave their bodies. Fingers could come back. Totally restored and healed. Incredible things. And here's a man that from the time he's born, he does not have eyes in his sockets. He is not just blind because one day he got went blind. He's blind because there are things and parts that weren't there. He was born blind. There was no fixing it. There was no curing it. It was, it was his, his eyes were not fixed to see. But yet Jesus can take just a little mud and rub it on both sides of his face. The second reason is because Jesus very rarely liked to do the same thing twice. And if you are a church person, you are thankful for that. Because if this had been the way Jesus had normally done it, we would have a mud pie right here in the middle of this altar. And anyone that ever got sick, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to smother you in mud because that's what Jesus did. Brother Lot, you're crazy. Listen, I've done enough Jericho marches in my life, and I ain't ever seen a city of Jericho wall, but I've walked enough of them. Let me tell you what church people like to do. They like to figure out the system. And let's keep repeating the sick. That's the way Jesus did it. If anybody ever got oil poured on them, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, he poured it down to air his beer. Oh, Lord, don't give that man the whole bottle. I've been there. Clothes weren't. Oh, Tim Lott, there's an anointing coming on you. I'd like, it better come on me. Better come on my dry cleaner too. Jesus, two things. He first wanted to show his creative ability, and he wanted to show, I can do this anyway. I can, he could have just spoke to that man. He said, see, he would have saw. He could have just laid his hand on his head. But two things that he wanted to make sure of, that God wants you to make sure of today as I come to a close. Number one, he has not lost his creative power in your life. I don't care how blind it seems, how bad it seems, how lost it seems, how gone it seems. I don't care how messed up it. I don't care if you say I've dealt with this from the time I was born. This man would say amen. His creative power has not ceased. That's why I don't care what a doctor says. 
because I'm not dependent on the cancer doing this or this doing this or something happening here. I'm not worried about that. I serve a God that can speak one word and have whatever organs that need to be replaced and whatever things need to be done, it can happen. <laughs> Brother Lot, you believe that? I'm abnormal. Of course I believe it. And then secondly, I've come by to tell you that he wants it to be personable. He didn't just speak it and he didn't just do it and he didn't, he touched the man. And I have to confess here, be very honest with you, that is one of my greatest weaknesses. Because of the way God designed me and made me, I'm, I'm very much a fixer, a problem solver. If you tell me the problem, I'll do it. I, I'm not a, hey, let's cuddle up and talk about it. It's very hard for me. And of all the things I wish I could go back in my, my marriage, my life, my kids, I wish I had spent more time just hugging them. It may sound strange. Some of you are huggers and don't ever know what to say. Well, I always know what to say. I just don't know how to hug. I'm always on the other end. I can fix anything. I spend my whole life learning to fix. But Jesus not only fixed, but Jesus had the compassion to say, with my hands, I'm going to touch you. And let me tell you the second thing. Your life will be different. His touch on your life will look different than the touch on my life. Because he don't like to do the same things twice. So when you say, I want to be what Pastor Lot is, that's a bad philosophy because he only made one of me. Thank goodness. But he only made one of you. And your stories... And your hurts and your, your, your downs and your, your, your situations. And as Oswald Chambers says, he, he don't ask permission. He just chooses and says, this is what you're going through. And this is what you're, but I'm doing it not to hurt you, but I'm doing it to bring you to a destination that you'll see me and you'll know me and you'll love me. Jesus wasn't doing that to embarrass the man. He was doing it because he knew he was healing the man. Looking back on my life, I'm thankful for every one of the situations. I do not want to repeat most of them, but I'm thankful. Because I could see them in ways that I never would have if I hadn't. Have. They came with pain. They came with disappointment, hurt. Yes. But I would never have known, as the old song says, that he would not leave me if I'd ever not been through that kind of trial. So two things today as I come to an end. He wants to touch you. He wants to show you He's still creating. He wants it to be personable. And He wants you to know you can't look at the person beside you and say, well, what about this one? Because it won't work the same way twice. Your story will be different. But it will be beautiful. Will you stand?
I can't say it any better than Chase said it earlier. And the praise team brought such a presence of God earlier in this service. Wow, if you, there's no, no amount of anything I could do to make it any more powerful than it was at that moment. But maybe by what I've said, it makes more sense. Maybe it's sunk deeper into your spirit. Maybe, maybe you see it a little clearer that He does love me. That even when I couldn't see Him, for all of us were blind and lost. That when I could not see Him, He saw me and came to me. And He touched me. Maybe it seems strange. Maybe my mind goes back to when I was nine years old and I got saved. At nine years old, I was that day smoking in a shed. Because we had raked a guy's yard. He didn't have no money and he gave us all a pack of cigarettes. He said, it's all I got. We thought at nine years old, that's the coolest thing in the world. We didn't even know to open windows or nothing. We just knew we needed to hide. We were sitting in that shed where we kept our rakes. And man, we were all coughing and and just... And I'm sure when I walked in the door, I smelt like smoke. That night I went to church. My dad never said anything. I heard the sermon that night and sitting on the back row... God spoke to me, maybe like He's speaking to you. Tim, you're blind, son. You're lost. I know what you did today, but I'm not mad at you. I got a plan for you. Let me touch you. Just let me touch you. I remember walking by my dad hoping he would fix it, you know. Walked by and said, Dad, I've, I've done some stuff. and, and I, I'm not right. And I was hoping he put his arm around, son, it's all right, we all make. But my dad just looked at me with tears. He said, son, you know what you got to do. You know what you got to do. Nobody could walk across there to the pool of Salaam and wash that off for him. He had to do it. He had to do it because the one who touched him said, that's what we got to do. I got a plan. The plan's to do you good. So maybe you understand it a little better right now. With every head bowed, if you're in this room and you say, Pastor, it's time. He tries to touch me, but I shake it off. I've got all the excuses. But I hear Him. And for the first time in a long time, or the first time ever, I want Him to touch me. I want Him to put His arms around me. I want Him to say, hey, we're going to walk out of this blindness.
you're going to see. What used to be normal won't be normal anymore. I'm touching you because I love you. I'm touching you because I want to do in you something I've never done in anybody else. I want to be, make you unique. If that's you this morning, then right where you're standing with your head bowed or if you feel like I need to step out and make this open. I need God to touch me openly. Then that's, that's okay. You can step out. And I, I prefer that. But right where you're standing, if you mean what you say, if you bow your head and say, Father, touch me. No one else can touch me but you. No one else can fix the blindness. No one else can heal the hurt. No one else can change what I'm feeling but you. But I trust you. I trust you. Father, right now, that conversation is between you and them. I can't go no further. The next word they hear is your word. The next feeling they feel is your arms. It's you telling them their value and telling them how much you love them. God, you do what I fail to do so much. Just... Just wrap your loving arms and mercy and grace around them and let them know that this was never meant to hurt you, all that you've been through, but it was to give God glory. Your life was meant to give Him glory. Father, I thank You for it. Right now. In Jesus' name, Amen. May the Lord bless you. I'll dig some more into this next week. If you get a chance this week, don't let the devil give you fits. You give him fits. <laughs>